over the course of the, the past couple weeks, if, if you haven't been around or maybe serving in the, the kids' wing, we, we've seen, if I could sum it up, the author of Ecclesiastes throw out some massive philosophical questions. Questions like chapter six, verse 12. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Also chapter six, verse 12. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Chapter seven, verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Chapter seven, verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Chapter eight, verse one, he says, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? If you weren't around the past couple of weeks and, and that list of questions sparks your curiosity at all, you should definitely go back and, and listen to the the podcast of those couple of sermons online. Unfortunately, don't have time to, to do a deep dive into those waters again, but what I can tell you is that the author at this point brings a few philosophical conclusions to bear. Number one, all are sinners in this world in which wickedness pervades society. Number two, there's not enough wisdom in all the universe to make sense of the world in which we live. Number three, God's activity in the world is seemingly arbitrary so that even a wise person can't figure it out. Number four, it doesn't matter who you are, no one escapes death. And number five, God-ordained distraction is the best we can hope for under the sun. And all of God's people said, yippee, right? I promise if you're new to this series, it, it really does get better as I've described it uh, at a couple points along the way. It's a half hour of pessimism followed by about 10 minutes of gloriously hopeful gospel-infused optimism. So hang in there. Chapter nine, verse 13. He says this, he says, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. This morning's passage begins with a story, a story of a king that, that attempted to overtake a small, lowly populated city, but was stalled in his attempt by a poor wise man who delivered the city by his wisdom. Poor man eventually despised and forgotten. It's very similar to a story that if you were around in chapter four, we've, we've seen this before to some extent. Chapter four, verses 13 through 16, the author said, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after win. Chapter four, it's the story of a king who who isolated himself from his advisors in his old age, having become too proud to receive counsel and, and who was eventually supplanted by a young man having overcome poverty through wisdom and who established this enormous following. And yet, according to the story in chapter four, the wise king was ultimately forgotten just like the foolish king, none rejoicing in him in the end. Both of those stories emphasizing a point that the author has already made, namely that wisdom, yes, it's more advantageous than folly, and yet even the wise will be forgotten when all is said and done. 
Going all the way back to chapter two, verse 16, the first time we see this, he says, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. The same fate awaits both, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And yet, coming back to this morning's passage, he does give a little bit more emphasis, right, to, to the general advantage of wisdom. He says, but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. He says, even though the poor man's wisdom is despised, wisdom is better than might. It's a point that he goes on to emphasize in verses 17 and 18, where he says, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner, he says, destroys much good. So you have this clear contrast between wisdom and power. Power given expression by the phrases, the shouting of a ruler or weapons of war. He says, wisdom is better, though it doesn't always lead to a, a hopeful outcome. As evidenced not only by the, the forgotten poor wise man in the story uh, whose wisdom is despised, going back to verse 16, but also the sinner who destroys the good that wisdom might otherwise bring, going back to verse 18. He says, wisdom can do great good in the world, but it only takes one sinner to destroy everything that wisdom has accomplished, which is the point he goes, goes on to drive home in chapter 10 in, in proverb-like form. Look at chapter 10, verse one. He says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly, he says, outweighs wisdom and honor. In other words, as he's just said at the end of, of chapter nine, it doesn't take much to destroy wisdom's efforts. A fly, it's an incredibly small creature, right? It can drive us nuts, seems bigger than it, than it actually is when it gets into your home and starts buzzing around. But a fly is an incredibly small creature. And yet, a fly can ruin an entire batch of perfume, something of significant value, causing the entire batch not only to, to lose its pleasing aroma, but more than that, causing the entire batch to give off a rotten scent. Right, some of you, you're, you're sent people when it comes to your trash bags, right? You go, to, you go to Target, Kroger, wherever you do your shopping and you buy the Febreze scented trash bags or the cotton scented trash bags, whatever, whatever it is. Others like me, our family, we're sent free people. If you're wondering, that's an open-handed issue for Cross Point Peachtree City. So both can be a part of this, this church family. But what he's saying here is it goes beyond that. It's not just that the good fragrance is removed to this sort of scent-free reality. He's saying, no, one fly in the ointment can create this putrid smell. A little folly, he says, something as small as a fly can not only destroy the aroma of wisdom's benefits, but it can create a stench, he says. He goes on in verse two to say, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. He says, a wise man and a fool are headed in completely opposite directions. Again, folly doesn't just bring a person off of wisdom's path and back to the fork in the road, fragrance-free, so to speak, but rather onto a completely different path of destruction, the rancid, putrid path. He says, verse three, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. He says, though it's evident to everyone around him, the fool lacks the sense to see his own foolishness. Oh my goodness, if, if that's not a, a good motivator to, 
dive into a community group. I don't know what is. I, I can't tell you how many times I miss my own foolishness and sin, and others help me to see it. Um, he says, to, to everyone uh, that, that he is a fool, the fool says to everyone around him, both with his lips and with his life at various points along the way. He goes on in verse four to say, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. He says a calm response in the presence of, of power, in the presence of the king's anger can lead to a good outcome. But if you were around last week, let's not forget what he said back at the beginning of chapter eight, where he declared wisdom to be more advantageous than folly, generally speaking, but wisdom is worthless, he said back in chapter eight, in the presence of the supreme power of a king. A king does what, whatever pleases him, going back to chapter eight, even in the presence of the wise, so that a wise person's words can even go so far as to get him or her into, into great trouble at times. Not only are the wisest of people lacking in power and knowledge, but those in power over them hinder them from living in accordance with the very wisdom that they do possess. He says in verse five, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Here he continues to drive home the point that a little folly can lead to great ruin. The tragedy he describes here, interestingly, is that brought about by an error proceeding from the ruler. That word translated error, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, that word's used to talk about the unintentional sins of the people. Meaning that all it takes is one unintended mistake, not even a purposeful mistake, an unintended mistake to turn the world upside down, the right order of society reversed, a complete collapse as described in verses six and seven, a fly in the ointment, going back to chapter 10, verse one. He says in verse eight, he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So simply by by doing your job, the everyday tasks of life, bad things are bound to happen in a world in which the, the smallest of unintended mistakes can lead to destruction, a world of unavoidable accidents. Verse 10, he says, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. He says, Wisdom sharpens the blade of the ax before doing any chopping. That makes sense to us, right? There's some logic behind that. Some of us have tried to do things the hard way because we think it's the easier way. We try to take a shortcut and it actually doesn't end up being shorter in the end, right? He says, wisdom doesn't do that. Wisdom sharpens the blade before chopping the wood. Wisdom charms the snake before it does any biting, verse 11. In other words, wisdom can make us more productive and can protect us from harm at the same time. But notice, similar to last week's passage, that it's, it's not just about the right action, but also the proper timing. You gotta get that right too. The blade must not only be sharpened, but it must be sharpened before the labor. The snake must not only be charmed, but it must be charmed before the biting. Going back to, to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verses five and six, 
where he said, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way for there's a time and a way for everything. He says the wise heart will know not only the right action to take, but also the proper timing of that action. But then he goes on to say, chapter eight, verse six, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit, he says, or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. In other words, going back to last week, wouldn't it be nice to possess the wisdom to make good decisions in their proper timing if only our judgment wasn't clouded by the difficulties of life? If only we had the power and the knowledge to act rightly in every situation. Too bad we don't. Going even further back in the rearview mirror, chapter two, verses 13 through 17, you may remember this passage where the author said, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that this same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wisest of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, he says, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. That generally the, the one who works hard will have food in his or her pantry. Generally, the one who takes care of his or her body will live a longer life. And yet wisdom he says, though it typically leads to a, a better outcome than folly, the same thing happens to both in the end. That even the one, to, to take the language of this morning's passage, even the one who charms the snake at the proper time will experience the sting of death soon enough. Even the one who sharpens the ax will run out of strength eventually. He says in verse 12 of chapter 10, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him for he does not know the way to the city. Again, it's a matter of left and right. The wise man and the fool headed in completely opposite directions. Wisdom winning favor, he says. Foolishness resulting not only in destruction but madness. The madness of never ceasing to talk, always having something to say about the future with no idea of what's really to come. That's what the fool does. Verse 16, he says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Again, this idea of wisdom producing the right action at the right time. Happy is the land, he says, uh, in which the king does the right thing at the appropriate time. It's a both and, which again, chapter eight is a bit of a pipe dream. And here's the terrifying thing. If you come back to chapter 10, verse one, the terrifying thing is that getting life 99% right isn't good enough because all it takes is a single fly in the ointment to undo it all, according to the author of Ecclesiastes. And it doesn't even have to be intentional one unintended mistake can destroy all of wisdom's work. 
which I think helps to make sense of the end of chapter 10 as he goes on in verse 18 to say, through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. In other words, doing nothing because you might make an unintended mistake is not an option. You can't live in paralysis. Idleness too leads to self-destruction. He said as much back in chapter four, verse five, where he said, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. He says, you gotta do something. You can't just sit there in a world in which a single fly, one foolish decision can lead to something destructive in your life. Hey, what do you do? Verse 19, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. It's another call to enjoyment. See it throughout the book over and over and over again, right? This time in in the form of a proverb. He says, eat, drink, and enjoy what you have. The God-ordained gift of distraction, going back to the end of chapter five, from the vanity of living in a world in which it's incredibly easy to ruin your life. Perhaps even the lives of others around you. And, And he shows that at the end of chapter 10, verse 20. Look at this, he says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. In other words, he says something as small and unseen as a thought or a word spoken in secret can destroy you. Be careful with the smallest of thoughts and words, and even then, you're likely to make some unintended mistakes along the way which could destroy you anyway. Now, if I said, close your Bibles, let's pray, you wouldn't come back, right? Why would you? We would call it this under the sun church, not Cross Point Peachtree City at that point. Like, where's the hope? Especially if this is your first Sunday, you're like, seriously? Like, this is the church I picked to come check out and attend this morning? Where is the hope? The the author of Ecclesiastes, you gotta go back to earlier in the series to get the framing on this. I don't have time to unpack this this morning, but essentially what he's doing is he's showing us how incredibly unromantic and irrational it is to consider life from an under the sun perspective, driving us to the romantic rationalism of the Christian worldview, life above the sun. Coming back to the, the story at the beginning of this morning's passage, I love that story because the truth is, If we can envision ourselves for a moment in the story, you and I, we're the city that didn't stand a chance. That's who we are. Besieged by the devil of hell. No hope of deliverance. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in his uh, letter to the Ephesian church. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, besieged by the devil of hell, no hope of deliverance, two of my favorite words in the Bible, but God. Ephesians 2 goes on to say, verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's so much there. 
you could sit for eternity with it and be mind blown, have your heart overwhelmed. Coming back to that story at the end of chapter nine of Ecclesiastes, praise be to the poor wise man who by his wisdom delivered the city, Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. Like we know chapter nine, verse 18, all of us that one sinner destroys much good. Right? Look no further than the garden sanctuary of Eden, the sin of our first parents destroying God's good creation so that creation itself, Romans 8, groans for its own redemption along with us. Paul says in another part of Romans, Romans 5, that sin came into the world through one man, one fly in the ointment, and death through sin, and that death spread to all men because all sinned, and that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So that when you look back to Genesis 3, there, there should be something that resonates about Ecclesiastes 10 when you see that language. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Praise be to God that Paul doesn't stop there in Romans 5, but he then goes on to say, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, one fly in the ointment, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. No denying that one sinner can destroy much good. But the beauty of the gospel is that there's one righteous one, Jesus Christ, who overcame our sin, living the sinless life that you and I could never live so that he might die in our place as our spotless, sin-bearing substitute. And think about this, coming back to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. He died not only for the most visible, evident to all expressions of foolishness and sin in our lives, but he died for every single unseen wicked thought. Everything in the third spaces that no one sees, Jesus died for that too. Rising from the grave in victorious triumph, not only delivering the city without hope through his sin-conquering resurrection, but, but get this, to add wonder upon wonder, defeating the besieging devil of hell himself. Who, who sought to destroy us. And, and oh, by the way, if that wasn't enough, that poor wise man, now high king of heaven, will never be forgotten. Revelation chapter five, verses 11 through 13 says it this way. Then I looked, the apostle John says, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might. How does he finish it? Forever and ever. Unlike the, the poor wise boy who saved the city in Ecclesiastes chapter nine, Jesus will never be forgotten. We will continue to worship him for eternity. I think the, the biggest, most monumental question that we could ask is, will we be a part of that gathering around the throne? Will you be a part of that? Or will your city, to use that language of Ecclesiastes 9, will your city lie in ruins when all's said and done because you failed to trust in Jesus? Because the reality is, none of us can deliver ourselves. 
Jesus is the only sufficient rescuer, which is why Paul goes on to say, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, very famous verses, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. As Justin said earlier, it's not obey a certain number of commands and God will love you. That's religion. The gospel says it's not about what you do or don't do. It's about what Jesus has done. And it is finished, he said. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. If you're not a Christian and you haven't done it yet, I invite you to to run to Jesus, to turn to him now as a worthy savior and king, declaring him the hope of salvation. And if you are a Christian, I love how Paul finishes out that section of Ephesians 2. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Coming back to this morning's passage, while it may be true that one sinner destroys much good, it's also true that one sinner saved can do a whole lot of good to the praise of God's glorious grace. we, We don't have to live paralyzed. We don't have to settle for distraction as our only go-to. He says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared by God himself that we should walk in them. To say it differently, Christianity is no fly in the ointment religion. It's not. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16. Love these verses. He says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we, maybe one of the most mind-blowing verses in all the Bible, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. That Some of you, this is what you need to hear this morning. In Christ, you're not putrid smelling, nor are you fragrance free. Don't take this to sound silly, but you're scented. You're the aroma of Jesus Christ. I think if we could sit with that just long enough, it might radically reorient us. Think about that. You're more exponentially precious to God than some bottle of perfume. You're, you're, to, to use Paul's words, and this is mind-blowing, you, you are the aroma of God the Son in the breathing in of God the Father. Just go sit with that this week. Don't ta- you can just discard everything else I've said. Sit with that, and I promise you the outworking of that will be glorious. You are the aroma of God the Son in the breathing in of God the Father. And what that's meant to lead to is not a turning inward, but rather as God's precious one, Paul says, you've been given the honor and the privilege of spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ wherever you go. As Justin said earlier, we just happen to be in the 30269 and surrounding areas zip code in doing that. We get to spread the fragrance of Jesus wherever we go so that God might get the glory and others might be invited into this triumphal procession. 
the, the above the sun reality and beauty of the gospel is so much better.